traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Economic policy has been transformed in 2020. But there's a sleeping giant some economists are afraid of waking. Will the coronavirus pandemic usher in a new era of high inflation? You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Simon Long. And coming up today, how one of the world's biggest pension funds is navigating rock-bottom interest rates, the risks of the pandemic era and the spectre of inflation. We do think people will come back to hospitality and leisure travel and other aspects of experience. We are taking some of those bets. And the remarkable resilience of America's restaurant chains. Chains certainly had advantages going in. Among those, the ability to sit back and plan new strategies for the pandemic to roll out across different locations. Living with high inflation is grim. Rapid, continuous increases in prices devalue hard-earned wages, shrivel people's precious savings, and make planning ahead all but impossible. In the 1970s, inflation averaged 10% a year in the rich world. But these days, policymakers are more likely to worry about inflation being too low than too high. In the past decade, in most of the rich world, it's tended to undershoot central bank targets, usually 2%, and during the pandemic, it's fallen even further. However, a small but vocal band of economists and investors are voicing concerns that the coronavirus pandemic may usher in a new inflationary era. The mainstream view of economists, of central bankers, and also investors is that inflation isn't going to be a problem anytime soon. But not everyone shares that opinion. Henry Kerr's our economics editor. In the inflation of the 1970s and 1980s, more than half of Americans said inflation or the high cost of living was the single biggest problem facing the country. Nowadays, hardly anyone sees it as worth mentioning. And that's because inflation as a problem over a period of decades essentially went away. And the big puzzle in the 2010s was why inflation didn't seem to respond to economic conditions. So now it's almost got to the point where people who talk about inflation or worry about inflation are sort of marked out as outside of normal economics or perhaps people who haven't properly studied what's changed in the world economy or haven't read The Economist or haven't studied Japan. But what's happened this year is that this small but vocal group of dissenters have popped up and they looked at a few factors. They looked at the government stimulus programmes that have happened this year. They looked at demographic change in the 2020s. And they look at changing preferences of policymakers. And they say, as a result, that this low inflation paradigm we've been in is all about to change. Now, Henry, some listeners may recall how back in July you were on Money Talks in an episode we called The Age of Free Money, talking about how this year many countries have embraced a new kind of macroeconomic policy disregarding deficits, 
and splurging enormously on pandemic stimulus. That presumably has had some effect on the risk of inflation. Yes, absolutely. So the stimulus programmes that governments have pursued this year, they've been possible in part because interest rates are so low and expected to remain low. And what that means is that governments can issue debt and their interest payments will be very cheap. But why are interest rates low? Well, the fundamental cause of interest rates being low is that inflation is low insofar as interest rates go up when central banks worry about inflation and they have to raise rates to see off the risk. So there's a sense in which the sustainability of public debt is is linked to the inflation outlook. And what the people who expect a burst of inflation after the pandemic say is that the stimulus programmes this year have greatly increased the supply of money in the economy. And this harks back to an idea that was popular in the, in the 80s, the idea of monetarism, that the way you predict inflation is by looking at the amount of money sloshing around the economy. And what's happened this year is, is that's gone up a lot. After the financial crisis a decade ago, a lot of people pointed to central bank money creation and said that's going to be inflationary and they were wrong. Uh, But the key difference between what's happening this year and what happened then is that after the financial crisis, the economy was still working off the effects of a credit crunch. And what a credit crunch tends to do when there's not much lending going on is that reduces the supply of money in the economy. But there's been no simultaneous credit crunch this year because central banks have acted so much to keep it flowing. So as a result, these sort of measures of broader money in the economy have gone up a lot as well. And what the uh, inflationistas, as you might call them, say is that that money will sort of inevitably eventually feed through into inflation once economies recover. And what else are they worried about, these inflationistas? Well, you've got the money supply, that's one factor. The second thing is demographics. This case has been made most strongly in a recent book by Charles Goodhart, who used to be a monetary policymaker at the Bank of England, and Manoj Pradhan. And what they say is that what drove the low inflation of recent decades wasn't really central banks. Central banks took the credit for it. But what really drove it was demographic forces, such as the integration of China into the world economy, which created this really large supply of labour, baby boomers reaching their peak earnings years. And that abundant supply of labour kept down wage pressures and therefore kept down price pressures in the global economy. And they say, if you look at demographic projections, that's going to reverse The curious thing about this example is that it does seem to contradict the recent experience of Japan, which has been further along the ageing curve than any other rich country, and yet has had the biggest problem of low inflation. And how do policymakers view the return of inflation? So the Federal Reserve has already said that it's deliberately going to let inflation exceed its 2% target in the recovery from the pandemic. And the people who think about the political forces acting on central banks, some of them say that in a world of populist politics and high debts where politicians want interest rates to stay low, there'll be political pressure on central banks not to prioritise the fighting of inflation. And that to the extent central banks were responsible for the low inflationary period, their declining stature will help bring about a more inflationary period after it. And how about you, Henry? How do you judge the risks? Is, Is inflation really about to come back from the dead? Well, I think what this debate illustrates is the extent to which there's still a certain amount of uncertainty about the forces driving inflation. I'm on the disinflationary side of the debate in that uh, I look at the experience of Japan. I look at the 
uh, forecasts of financial markets and there really don't seem to be inflationary risks on the horizon. But I maintain a little bit of humility here in saying that there are a lot of uncertainties at play. And it seems to me that there is a tail risk of inflation and maybe even persistently high inflation, which we should be live to and should think about. And the Goodhart Pradhan book is very interesting. I'd recommend it to listeners. So I'm open to the argument and I think we should definitely keep examining it and not just assume that because the central case is that inflation doesn't take off, that there aren't any risks here. OK, Henry, let's put you on the spot. You're a central banker for a day. How do you ensure against the risk of inflation coming back? What I certainly wouldn't do is look to sort of dramatically tighten policy now. I mean, the biggest risk to the global economy is still the slump and the unemployment that we face in the near term. One thing that I think is really under-discussed in general is the issue about the maturity of public debt. You often see people making that argument. They say the reason today's fiscal stimulus is sustainable is because we can borrow for 30 years at less than 1%, say. It varies across countries, but you hear that a lot. But there's sort of a emperor's new clothes to today's macroeconomic policy, which is that governments have, in fact, been doing the opposite of that. They've been issuing lots of debt at the short end of the curve, where the interest rate could go up easily. And then there's also this issue about central bank bond buying. As we've explained in The Economist before, when the central bank buys bonds, what it's doing is replacing those bonds with its own liabilities called central bank reserves, which carry a floating rate of interest. So again, all this bond buying from central banks does the opposite of locking in low rates. It means that the government taken as a whole, the government and the central bank together, have more liabilities which carry a floating rate of interest and are therefore more exposed to rising interest rates. And so what I think both governments and central banks need to think about is whether that's the right approach and whether we shouldn't actually be locking in these interest rates at a long horizon to ensure against the risks. And that, I think, is going to be one of the policy decisions to be made coming out of this crisis. Henry Kerr, thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. Inflation is one of many risks weighing on the minds of money managers in the pandemic era, as our next guest testifies. Mark Machin's president and CEO of the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, or CPPIB. It's Canada's largest pension fund and one of the biggest in the world. It manages 457 billion Canadian dollars. That's over 350 billion US dollars on behalf of some 20 million Canadians. In the past 15 years, the CPPIB has transformed itself into an investment powerhouse that rivals the biggest Wall Street asset managers with legions of investment staff and analysts. Our finance correspondent, Mathieu Fever, spoke to Mark Machen and asked him how Canada's pension funds became so involved in making investments, while many others content themselves with parking their money in funds run by asset managers. I think what has been special about our model is the independent governance. So we have a board of directors who are all independent senior people in business in Canada and around the world. That's the first thing. So none of those people are representatives of government or a labor union or something like that. The second thing is there's a very clear mandate for the fund, which is purely to maximize returns without undue risk. 
That independence is really what has allowed us to build internal teams and internal expertise and to do that type of direct investing. Do you think the Canadian model is one that should or could be applied to the rest of the world? It is very hard for countries to, to do that, to put their national pension system at arm's length from politics, arm's length from uh, labor unions and other you know, well-meaning people who ultimately can make it a more complicated situation to just achieve the investment returns. When the market's up, people encouraging you to buy, and when the market's down, people encouraging you to sell because everything's going to get you know, going to go to hell in a handbasket. And so the, that type of behavior you see prevalent in many funds around the world where you have non-professionals on a board, where you have more political interference in the running of the funds. So yes, there were some very brave decisions that were made in the 1990s when this was established. It's hard to replicate for, you know, understandable political reasons in lots of countries. Pension funds around the world are facing this tough situation whereby interest rates are, are low or even negative for the long run. Uh, do you think this is going to lead the fund to take more risk? The, the simple answer to that is no, because the way we actually construct the portfolio is we target a level of risk, which has been pretty consistent for the last several years. So we target a level of risk, a market risk, that it would be the equivalent of having 85% equities in our portfolio. So we're not likely to change uh, that level of market risk just because of prevailing market conditions. But how, how we get to that level of market risk and how we construct the portfolio, you know, probably will get influenced by prevailing conditions. And it certainly will impact what we expect in terms of future returns, because clearly future returns here are going to be much or significantly lower than they have been for the last 10 years, given the extraordinary rise in markets since then. Now, notwithstanding what you just explained about undue risk, it's probably fair to say that on some occasions, at least CPPAB isn't uh, shy about betting on, on slightly unfashionable stocks. So despite the impact of the pandemic on tourism, shops and offices, you recently invested a very large sum in a cruise company. And you also own a commercial property portfolio worth nearly 44 billion Canadian dollars. What makes you so confident that this, these sectors are, are worth betting on at the moment? Yeah, so the, the, the cruise line one is an interesting one that's certainly got a lot of headlines recently. So we put some more money into a company called uh, Viking Cruises, uh, which does, in principle, a lot of river cruises in Europe. Its general customer base is sort of middle-aged and aging uh, Americans. It's clearly a very challenged business today, but we have conviction that this is a really well-run company that will be one of the leaders in the future. And this is a bet that the experience economy to a great extent is going to come back. And even as maybe, you know, we're struggling to get global herd immunity over the next couple of years, there are still businesses that have thought through the logistics, the micro logistics, the how to keep people safe and customers safe, uh, even during that period, I think will come back faster. We are taking some of those bets. In terms of real estate overall and office real estate, I call that the $5 trillion question. We do think that it, it depends on the location. It depends on you know, who your tenants are, et cetera. So one of the investments we made that's in the headlines recently is we recently invested in an office tower in Seattle where Amazon is the principal tenant uh, with a long lease. And we think that's a, that's a good tenant to have. And, and work from home, I think, is here to stay but I think people still will need significant floor plates in major cities. 
obviously lots of conviction on data centers, lots of conviction on logistics. I think retail is a huge amount of repurposing, you know, rezoning and consolidation of what's going to happen in that sector over time. Institutional investors typically have appetite for infrastructure, but, uh, but mostly it's for existing assets rather than new projects. Many governments around the world are counting on a boom in investment in infrastructure as part of their recovery programs. So what role do you think that they can play, institutional investors like yourselves, with big pools of essentially idle savings in making this boom happen? You're right. There's a huge amount of money that is available for infrastructure investment. And when you think about very low uh, interest rates for a long time, suppressed investment returns, people are looking at fixed income alternatives and they're prepared to bid very aggressively for them. So anybody selling infrastructure today is going to get extraordinary prices for it which is obviously a challenge for us as a buyer. We're going to have to compete with a wall of capital. But as a government, it's, there's been no, almost no better time to sell infrastructure, existing infrastructure that's operating and has dependable cash flows. And the reason why it's harder for institutional capital like ours to invest in the new construction is that there's many more risks that are very difficult for us to control when you're doing you know, greenfield new construction And local governments, municipal governments, uh, local construction companies, etc., are much better at understanding and pricing that risk. And we're unlikely to be competitive. So the best model in the world is the one where governments sell existing assets and recycle that money into building the new. And then when that's up and running and de-risked, they sell it again onto institutional capital like ours, which will pay a really high price for it. More generally, if we look at stock markets, so, so listed equities in particular, they, they are extremely high at the moment, uh, well higher than they were a year ago when COVID-19 was still unknown to most people. Do you think the, the exuberance is, is sustainable? And what risks that you deem realistic at the moment could prick the bubble if there is one? Yeah, well, I think a lot of the risks would probably be around the speed to control the pandemic. Look, if, if, and I really hope this doesn't happen, you know, there are setbacks in the, on the vaccine front you can see a significant correction because people are pricing in recovery here during 2021, a fairly substantial recovery. The other concern is there's been this huge transfer of capital from government to households and uh, private sector. You know, a lot of it is sitting in bank accounts. It could get deployed very quickly. You could see inflation. I think central banks are going to react very slowly to it because they haven't seen inflation for so long Uh, so that, that's another, another risk out there. Not, not in the next month, not probably in the next year, but I think people are going to be watching that fairly closely. And so at CPPIB, how do you hedge against such risks? The ultimate answer is diversification. So we don't put a hedge on the top of the portfolio. So, you know, approaching $500 billion, we're having that hedge in place uh, doesn't make sense. But, but we do diversify across you know, a whole range of geographies and different programs. You know, we have this goal of having up to two thirds of the fund in emerging markets. Some of those are behaving differently. And, and then we also have this diversification across you know, all these different strategies and asset classes, some of which will be beneficiaries of, of inflation if that happens. Thank you very much, Mark, for talking to us. Great pleasure. Thank you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. And finally, COVID-19 has been brutal for the big tenants of American shopping centers. Clothing shops and cinemas, even big chains, have been shut down by the pandemic. But strangely enough, that's not the case for the casual eateries that surround these outlets. Many of America's chain cafes and diners are on track to emerge from 2020 stronger than they went into it. How have they managed this remarkable feat? And can they clear the final hurdle of a long, dark pandemic winter? Independent restaurants have certainly struggled, especially with fluctuating local restrictions and early closures of their dining floors. So certain parts of the industry have been devastated, especially at the local level. Sofia Caldera has been reporting on the American restaurateurs, proving the forecasters wrong. In the U.S., the review website Yelp found that more than 32,000 restaurants had closed between March and September. And of those closures, they estimate that 61% are likely to be permanent. But there have been notable exceptions where America's restaurants have proved very resilient nationally. And especially prominent among those are America's chains. So is that what it's all about? Is it a question of scale? Are the big chains always going to be better placed to survive? Not every chain has thrived in the same way. But chains certainly had advantages going in. Among those, their credit lines and their corporate infrastructure and the ability to sit back and plan new strategies for the pandemic to roll out across different locations with different sets of restrictions nationally. But I I guess at every level, these businesses have had to innovate. Uh, And what sort of innovations have we seen in terms of new products and services? Rolling out businesses that can be conducted off-premises is a very important part. For instance, the chain Texas Roadhouse created family-to-go packs, as well as a butcher shop online that let them move more of their products into people's houses without the same role for their traditional dining space and their kitchens as they had pre-existed the pandemic. By October, although this also included some returns to in-store dining, they had managed to increase their same-store sales year over year. What, What other sorts of ways are there of propping up profit margins? So a second strategy is to try to increase your margins on existing businesses. Uh, One restaurant that exemplifies that strategy is Olive Garden, which is managed by Darden. And there they slashed their promotional spending and simplified menus so that on each transaction they were able to take in a higher amount of profit. And even with flagship locations like their Times Square outlet closed for most of the pandemic, they were able to reinstate their dividend after the second quarter And they've improved their margins to very good numbers for the restaurant industry. Now, I know you've been looking at the American market, but to what extent are you aware is this pattern being replicated internationally? Well, Dennis Geiger of UBS, a bank, says that U.S. chains have been outperforming their international rivals in terms of speed of recovery. Stricter regulations and shyer consumers elsewhere have both played a role. For instance, in Hong Kong, Receipts fell to an all-time low in third quarter since they've been keeping data. And even fast food chains, which have, in most parts of the world, run ahead of their independent counterparts, are down 23% year over year. The two companies that I mentioned previously, Darden and Texas Roadhouse, have both recovered their pre-pandemic stock levels. And in fact, Texas Roadhouse is up one-third of its valuation from January. Now, the pandemic is, is far from over 
vaccines have yet to be approved by regulators, let alone rolled out in the United States. So these restaurants face a, a long winter ahead. You said there have been 32,000 closures so far. Are we going to see a lot more over, over the winter? It's certainly going to be another difficult season and national chains will again have a better time of it as they're able to do things like open patios in the south while northern locations are getting too cold for outdoor dining. Certainly further lockdowns and restrictions in any locale will affect their ability to keep turning the profits that they have been. It seems though that many of America's major chains have proved that they're able to deliver when need be. Sophia Caldera, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to this week's Money Talks. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, go to economist.com. There you'll find, among many delights, our free exchange column on whether central bank digital currencies might break the banking system. And if they do, would that be such a bad thing? And why investors are flocking to buy up shares in musicians' back catalogues, the latest being Bob Dylan's. If you're not yet a subscriber, and if not, why not? There's a special offer for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link's in the notes for this episode. And while you're with us, please take a moment to rate us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. We so appreciate your feedback. I'm Simon Long. And in London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.